In your talk about your views for cognitive science and Buddhism in the West for the next 10 to 15 years, you talked about everything except one point, which I personally have a lot of trouble with when trying to talk about these things with friends, teachers, etc. It pretty much blocks all conversation, and it is very hard to prove either side of the argument or give valid arguments for the Buddhist view. So, meeting with skeptics, people who have no interest in or maybe really no confidence in Buddhism at all, and frankly, why should they? It's the situation now, and in in really in, in so much of modernity, is so profoundly different than being born in Thailand, let's say, 80 years ago, Tibet 80 years ago, where you're, you're raised in a Buddhist community, you're raised in a Buddhist environment. I take Tibet, it's the culture I know best. But if you, were, if you were born 80 years ago in Tibet, unless you were born in one of those very rare Muslim families, they're very, very few, a Bun family, very similar to Buddhism, but the great majority were Buddhist. This means probably everybody you know is Buddhist. You've got a, a Tibetan, a, a Buddhist monastery, probably a stone's throw away. They're all over the place. You've got lamas coming through, really accomplished lamas. They'll be, they'll be traveling around the country. You've probably encountered some extraordinary lamas. All you have to do is you know, keep your eyes open, and there's an extraordinary lama coming, visiting. And the education system is all oriented around Dharma. Eighty years ago, there weren't any really, hardly any schools at all that weren't really for getting a Dharma education because that was considered the best education you could possibly get. And so you're, just, you're living in a sea of Buddha Dharma. It's not to say it's idyllic or utopian at all, but just everyone around you accepts the Buddhist worldview. And I would say there's a strong, a strong analogy. When I was being raised in California in the 1950s, 1960s, I'm being raised in a society where science is the primary paradigm of knowing about the natural world. And so when I, through grade school, I mean, I think for most of us this is true, through elementary school, middle school, secondary school. The teacher was never saying, now should you doubt Newton, here are the, here are the, here's the defense of Newton against medieval scholastics who doubted him. Nobody's doing that. You know, here's Newton. We all know that for in non-relativistic, non-quantum mechanical situations, the laws of Newton's are extremely good, and now we will teach you what we, knew, we, what we know to be true, and you will confirm through your experiments what we know to be true. And if you can't do it, do, do the experiment over again because you got it wrong. And I learned that, I had a wonderful case of that when I was an undergraduate in physics at Amherst College. I was taking a really high-powered course in elementary mechanics, Newtonian mechanics. And I believed in it. Why shouldn't I? It's a great system. And I was there in the lab doing an experiment. And, and my, my lab partner and I, we did the experiment. And we kept on disproving Newton. Every time we did it, Newton was wrong. So the professor called in the lab assistant, like a, a you know, senior student, and said, you know, fig, figure out what, what these guys are doing wrong. And the lab assistant came in and tried to figure out what we were doing wrong and tinkered with it. Tinkered with it. We ran the experiment again. Newton's wrong. But you know, it did not appear on the front page of the New York Times that Buddhist monk and lab partner proved Newton wrong. It didn't happen. I was a Buddhist monk at the time because clearly we did something wrong and the lab assistant quite, couldn't quite figure it out, but we can't dawdle there. We can't linger. We have to move on to the experiment. And so you didn't prove anything wrong. You just did it wrong. And I accept that. I don't doubt for a moment that we did it wrong. Something was wrong because we know Newton is right. <laughs> there we are. And there's so much of modern science in botany and chemistry and astronomy and multiple branches of physics where there's just knowledge out there. And most of your education in physics or any other major brand of science is, is to learn what is already known to be true. And if you don't get it, then you're wrong. 
when you finally get to your postdoctoral area, maybe your, post, your doctoral research, postdoctoral, then you may be testing hypotheses that nobody quite knows for sure or not. But until then, you're pretty much just learning what everybody knew to be true, and you don't really question it because you're wasting everybody's time. Right? If you really doubt, oh, does light really travel at 186,000 miles per second? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it goes slower. Like, you know. <laughs> Go away. You know, we already know. If you don't believe this, then just find something else to do. Be an art teacher or something. You know. Just don't waste our time here. Well, that's what it was like for Buddhadam in Tibet. I mean, we already know this stuff. Rainbow body. People achieve rainbow body. Yeah, yeah, my uncle achieved rainbow body. So, you know... There's nothing to doubt here. Everybody knows that people achieve rainbow body. Everybody knows that people levitate and that they're clairvoyant and they're precognitive and that there's reincarnation and lamas sometimes manifest in multiple bodies. We already know this, so let's just get on with it and reconfirm what everybody knows to be true. As if you're getting an undergraduate and graduate education in neuroscience. Let's learn what everybody knows to be true. That is not the case any longer. Not in modernity and frankly, to a large extent, it's not true in Tibet. And it's not true among the younger Tibetans in India. And it's not that true for young Mongolians. They're not just coming in, oh, just tell us, we'll believe everything you're saying. They're coming with interest, with sympathy, with some, you know, definite, some trust. But it's not like in the old days. And so we meet skeptics. And what I'm getting at here is that we can, it doesn't make any sense to teach Buddhism as if everybody was born in Tibet 80 years ago. Because hardly anybody was. Any longer. So I have found that many people have very firm belief that mind is nothing more than an emergent property of the brain. An emergent property of the brain. While I'm fairly convinced that it is not so, what do you think could be done to have a more certain answer? Okay, I think we can pause there. So, first of all, to understand what's meant by what these, so many people are absolutely confident about, as if, as, you know, as if they have the same knowledge of this that we know about Newton's three laws. Newton's three laws actually no. And many neuroscientists, I think, quite mistakenly, I mean, there's no question in my mind, quite mistakenly present this as a scientific fact as if it's one of the three laws of Newton. Well, that's just not true. Flat out ain't true. It's a very interesting hypothesis, and it may be true, but it's not been demonstrated yet. But let's, so when people say this, I think the first thing to do is, what exactly do you mean, and what's the evidence for it? Because so many people just say, including neuroscientific community, I think they're the worst culprits of completely conflating metaphysical speculation with scientific fact. In modern science, I don't see anybody doing it as much. I'll just give one example. I was at Columbia University just a few years ago at a conference. I was one of the speakers. Another of the speakers was a Columbia University neuroscientist who got up to the podium, and the first thing she said were two statements. The first one, with no preamble at all. Okay, the mind is the brain. No justification, no evidence, no nothing. It was like her saying, the lights are turned on. Just boom, the mind is the brain. And she's speaking as a scientist. She didn't say, I've got this idea, I wonder if you agree, maybe the mind's the brain. No, just, the mind is the brain. And then she went on to say, after conflating completely metaphysical speculation as scientific fact, then she went on to say something that really made my jaw drop. She said, there are 900 billion neurons inside the head and each one of them knows where it is. That's quite an extraordinary statement. I felt suddenly like my head was filled with 900 billion ants. Like my head was an ant hive. And each one of those ants knew where it was, but I didn't know where any of them were. And they didn't know where I was. And I felt... <laughs> I just 
want to shake them up. There's somebody out here. You may know where you are, but I'm over here. And why are you telling us this crap? Because it's complete crap. And presenting that as scientific fact, that you might have noticed kind of bugged me. Because there's just no empirical basis for that whatsoever, that every single neuron has its own consciousness and it knows where it is. So there's too much of that, where people are just conflating metaphysical speculation, assumption, hunch, belief, and completely mushing that together with the marvelous discoveries that neuroscientists have actually made, and they've made many of them. Here's a hypothesis. This is not a ridiculous hypothesis, but let's just examine it briefly. When people say, oh, you're so wrong because the mind is an emergent property of the brain. Good, what is an emergent property? Because this is a very good term, it's a very major term in modern science in multiple disciplines. Physics, botany, biology, psychology, and so forth. Very meaningful term. And lo and behold, this term emergent property, you find a direct correlation, direct translation, exactly that. And so, what's an emergent property? Well, you have elementary particles, like electrons, protons, and so forth, and they have their own properties, but then you have an atom comprised of nothing other than electro elementary particles and their force fields, but now an atom displays properties that none of its individual elementary particles have. So the atom displays emergent properties that are emerging from this coalition, this configuration of elementary particles, but it's a property of the whole and not a property of any of the individual parts. So atoms do things that individual elementary particles can't. Then we have conglomerations of atoms forming into molecules. Molecules display properties that individual constituent atoms don't. And then we have molecules that gather together into large accumulations of molecules. Here's a classic one, an H2O molecule, okay? A water molecule. There is no water molecule that is wet. No water molecule is fluid or moist but get a whole bunch of them together at what we would call room temperature, and now this aggregation of individual not wet molecules are displaying wet, okay? And so, likewise, we can get large bodies of molecules configured in very elegant, sophisticated ways, forming a cell. A cell then does things that none of the individual constituent molecules do. It has its emergent properties. And then we have a ganglia of cells, like a ganglia of neurons, and a ganglia of neurons with dendrite synaps synapses, they display emergent properties that no individual neuron has, which is why it's so utterly ridiculous to say a neuron has its own consciousness. That's just absolute speculation. And a type of an anthropomorphic anthropomorphication, anthropomorphizing of neurons, turning them into little sentient beings, you know, which is completely silly. But here it was, a mature, well-educated neuroscientist saying this in public, and the house, what really astonished me is everybody didn't start laughing. Oh well. So, these are all emergent properties. And then brain scientists, like Enrique himself, working with some extremely good ones in Wisconsin, then they've discovered, Antoine Lutz, Richard Davids, and others have found that there are global, simultaneous displays of, of global interactions of neurons. Okay? Global interactions, fi firings, giving rise to some global properties of large regions of the brain, displaying properties that no one of them has individually, but now globally emergent properties. So this happens in, from elementary particles up to the brain, it happens in botany, it happens in cosmology, galactic clusters do things that no single galaxy will do. So emergent properties are rife throughout the universe. Very good category. But now here's a statement that I don't think any serious physicist would deny. 
And that is every emergent property of a physical phenomenon is itself a physical property. Every emergent property of a physical phenomenon itself, that property, is, an emer- is a physical property. You don't get angels and demons and fairies and so forth popping out of, out of atoms. It's, it's emergent property. The emergent properties of themselves are physical, which means, at least in principle, they are physically measurable. So, and here's one way of doing it. Imagine you've got a microscope with a zoom microscope. It's a thought experiment. You can take the zoom microscope and go right down to the atomic level of H2O, right down to the H and the O's, and then zoom back and then see the emergent properties of the H2O molecule that the atoms didn't have, and zoom out, zoom out until you have a body, a little, a little puddle, a drop of water, and zooming out. And now you can observe, as you watch, as you observe now with the zoom lens, you can observe the emergent properties, the fluidity and the moisture of a little drop of water, which again, no individual water molecule has. But you're seeing that this is a property of that, of the constituent parts. You can actually see it. And that's true for all emergent properties that you can observe the phenomenon and its emergent property simultaneously, right? You can see them, actually, this is an emergent property of this. And so you can see that they are connected and you actually can observe how that emergent property is arising out of the constituent parts and it all makes good sense. So there's, there's a principle and it would be quite in accordance with Buddhism as well, that if you have a physical phenomenon like the earth element, then you have emergent properties, jung yukikechu, for example, smoothness or roughness, in Buddhist physics, smoothness or roughness is an emergent property of earth element and other elements. It's not, it only comes from having a whole bunch of earth element, you know, of, of particles. And then you get smooth or rough. But you can see that the smooth or roughness is really, you can see it demonstrably is a quality of the individual particles and so forth, the aggregation of the particles of the couch or what have you. So there it is. So what these people are saying is, that mental images and thoughts and consciousness and visual perception and memories and dreams and so forth, they're saying are emergent properties of the brain. This means if they are truly emergent properties, like all other emergent properties in the whole of nature known by all branches of science, big statement, then if they are truly emergent properties of the brain, the brain is physical, therefore these mental images, dreams, hopes and fears, desires and so forth, they must be physical, which means, of course, you should be able to observe them physically, which you can't. And it doesn't matter what degree of magnification, you can take the brain and go down to the atomic level, you won't see any mental images, and then you can zoom out to see molecules and then cells and ganglia of cells, and you can see a whole cortex, and at no point of magnification as you're zooming in and out, do you ever see any mental experience or subjective experience whatsoever. They're all equally invisible. You'll see emergent properties of the brain, but they are physical properties, and you can see them, they are physical properties of physical phenomena. But mental are utterly invisible and undetectable by all instruments of technology. That should be a kind of a clue that if you're going to call these emergent properties, they're not like any other emergent property in the whole of nature, therefore you shouldn't call them, put them in the same category of everything else which is fundamentally different. So that should really make people pause. And I've done this experiment in multiple places, really, really easy experiment. Um, I'm thinking, right, this is now a group experiment. You ready to experiment? Okay. I did this recently and I was quite startled. So let's see if you startled me as well. 
We did this in the three-day, three two-day retreat just before, coming, before we convened here. Okay, right now, I'm bringing to mind, with my privileged access to my own mind, I'm bringing to mind an image of one piece of fruit. I'm visualizing, by the way, just right here in my mind's eye, it's one piece of fruit. I'm visualizing quite vividly, and I know exactly what that kind of fruit is. There's no question in my mind. I see it vividly. And I can even, I'm actually bringing to mind its taste as well, as well as the texture, and of course its shape and color. Okay? Uh, what was the fruit? Thumbs down. <laughs> Somebody blew my mind in the last retreat. I've done this many times, and everybody was like you. A whole bunch of wrong guesses. Just as an anecdote, it's kind of cute. We had this little weekend, two-day two retreat, just before this one began, and there was a woman sitting right where Maria's sitting. And I was visualizing the fruit right where she was. I mean, I wasn't trying to, but she was right there, and I was like, right where she was, visualizing the fruit. And then I turned to this group of 76 people and said, anybody know what I was visualizing? And only one person answered, pineapple. She got it right. And I said, why did you say pineapple? And she said, well, I just attended to your mind and that was the image that came up. I don't know. This has to be replicated. Because, of course, maybe it's just a lucky guess and maybe... I don't know. But you people satisfied my expectations. You all got it wrong. Because you thought I would actually be so foolish as to choose a fruit that we're eating here. No, the fruit was, metaf the kind of fruit that I was imagining was metaphysical from your perspective. And that is you just have no way of knowing. It's metaphysical from your perspective. I can tell you something. I can tell you it was a lemon. And I was imagining the taste and the shape and the texture of the skin. I was really bringing together a full dimension, three dimensional lemon to mind. Uh, I knew it with direct perception. I didn't, it was not inference, it was not a guess, it was not a belief. I just knew directly, I am visualizing and there's the lemon. And so for me it was direct perception and for you, the content of my mind was metaphysical. You have no way of knowing. It's beyond the scope of experiential inquiry. But moreover, if Enrique brought in the whole team from, from University of Wisconsin with every bit of cool technology they have, my lemon is metaphysical for them too. They will have no way of knowing. They will not be able to know. They could do a full brain scan, a pet scan, a cat scan, a dog scan, any kind of scan they want to do. They're not going to pick up lemon. It's metaphysical for them. In other words, the lemon, there's no indication whatsoever that that image of lemon is physical, it's not detectable and it's not an emergent property of the brain because emergent properties of the brain emerge from the brain and you can observe that happening and they are physical and you can measure them as qualities of the brain but the lemon you can't measure and when I attended to the lemon I didn't see the brain and when people see the brain they don't see the lemon and the more carefully you examine the mental image the more obvious it is that it's not physical and the more carefully you examine the brain, the more obvious it is there are no emotions and thoughts and images and desires and hopes and fears in the brain. There are chemicals in the brain and there's electricity in the brain, but there are no subjective experiences in the brain. Therefore, the notion that it is an emergent property of the brain is blind faith.
because it's not like any other emergent property in the whole of nature. So why are you saying something that has no empirical basis and moreover all the evidence points in the opposite direction? That doesn't really make any sense. So there's one hypothesis. It just completely falls apart, falls apart upon examination. Another one is what the Colombian neuroscientist said is that the mind is the brain. Now what she was really saying is there are 900 billion minds in there inside the skull, but maybe she was speaking poetically. Maybe I have to be more charitable. I know I have to be more charitable. I'm not sure I have to be more charitable about her comments though. But in any case, is the mind the brain? Are specific mental events that are strongly correlated with very specific brain events, are they in fact identical and is that why they're correlated? Now this is when, where an area where there have been great strides in cognitive neuroscience. And the Buddhists just want to listen. And I've seen the Dalai Lama, I want to listen. I am interested. And what we're learning is what are these strong correlations between activation of this part of the brain, global activity here, activation there, damage here, repercussions on the mind, these kind of things. These correlations are fascinating and the neuroscientists, they have the privileged access to that, right? So what we know are there are these correlations and they're strong. Damage one part of the brain, stimulate one part of the brain and you get this and that corresponding, strong correlation. What is the nature of the correlation? That they are correlated, we know. Is it a correlation of identity? That this particular, if you stimulate a certain ganglia of neurons and suddenly a certain memory crops up, you take away the, st the, the stimulation and the memory vanishes. Stimulate, the memory comes up, take it away, va memory vanishes. You've got a strong correlation there. Antoine Lutz told me that was, that was possible to do that for very specific memories. You've got a correlation. Where's the evidence that they're actually the same thing? Because the mere fact that there's a correlation doesn't mean, if A and B are correlated, it doesn't mean they're the same thing. It just means they're correlated. And I was thinking about that in my room. You ever switch on the light? I think so. You switch on the light and you hit something. There's a correlation. The correlation, the light switch and the light. That must mean that the, the light switch and the light are the same thing. They're correlated. And I turned off the light and it went on and I flicked this and it went on and it went on. By the same reasoning, the light switch should be a light bulb because they're strongly correlated. Well, that's stupid. There's a causal connection there. Now damage the light switch though sufficiently so it doesn't go back and forth anymore and the light doesn't turn on. That proves it. Damage the brain sufficiently, the light doesn't go on. Therefore, the mind must be the brain, right? Damage the brain sufficiently? No thoughts anymore. You lose your memory, you lose your sight, you lose your hearing. But of course, that's sloppy thinking. You damage the light switch, stupid. That doesn't mean the light bulb is even burned out. Snip the cord, snip the wire from the light switch to the bulb, switch that. Ah, I see, the light, the light bulb is actually the wire. Because I cut the wire and the light went out. Re repair the wire, light goes on. I see, the light bulb is actually the wire. They're correlated, they're not the same thing, even though they're almost the same time. What one can easily do if one is really silly is ignore the fact that it's not the light switch and it's not the wire, that in fact there's an, an energy generator, you know, 10 miles away that's pumping out through those, wine, those lines and that's actually the source of the electricity that's manifesting in the light, but you can't see that. Not if, you're, if your measurements are all taking place within the room. So, the notion that, as one philosopher of mine I know very well has stated, 
that neurons or ganglia of neurons are Janus-faced. They have two faces. Subjectively, they look like subjective experiences. Objectively, they look like neurons, but in fact, they're the same thing. I listened to that and I said, oh, that's an interesting idea. Why do you think that? That is, the chemicals in there are really chemicals. You can find them in any chemist store. And electricity is the same kind of electricity that goes through the wires. There's not, no mental chemistry, or no, no mental chemi chemicals or electricity. So now suddenly we have chemicals and electricity that have taken on a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde dual personality. They used to be just chemicals, but now, by night, they are dreams. <laughs> How did these chemicals take on a dual identity of also being appearances and cognition and feelings and emotions? How did they do that? No answer at all, sheer speculation. And no way to put that to the test. It's just an idea. The other one is that mental phenomena are functions of the brain. Well, this is just like emergent property. All functions of physical phenomena are physical. They're measurable. You can see that this is the function of this. It's doing that. You can see it. But when you're attending to the mind, you don't see the brain. And when you're attending to the brain, you don't see the mind. How can one be a function of the other when you can't even observe two simultaneously? It doesn't make any sense. So the prasangaka approach to this, prasangaka madhyamaka approach, when, when grappling more specifically with do phenomena have their own inherent intrinsic nature or not, the prasanga approach is first of all to take alternative views that phenomena really do have their own inherent nature and critique them, analyze them, investigate them. Do they really stand up under very careful analysis? These are the three major hypotheses that absolutely dominate the mind sciences today. And they're, they're advocated by almost everyone. Not quite everyone, but almost everybody in the field. Either the mind is equivalent to brain or part of the brain, it's a function of the brain or parts of the brain, or the mind and all mental phenomena are emergent properties of the brain or parts of the brain. That's it. And all three of these are profoundly defective and have no empirical evidence to support them. All we have is correlations, but what's the nature of the correlation? Nobody knows. Then we add in this third ingredient that I find really quite hilarious, and that is, it's called, what I find hilarious is it's called the placebo effect. This is really one of the biggest jokes of modern terminology, because the one thing we know about the placebo effect is that it's not an effect of the placebo. A placebo is a sugar tablet, a salt tablet. But I just read an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago, and I thought, are you crazy? And it was by a psychiatrist, and he kept on, when he was talking about the placebo effect, he kept on talking about the power of the placebo pills. And, it, and he said, this is such a mystery. The power of the placebo, the power of the placebo pills. I thought, are you simply crazy? The placebo pill is designed that it has no power. You take it, it has no power, no power, zero power, therefore a placebo, no effect, it's called a placebo. Why are you getting over your migraine? Why are you getting over depression? Why, why, why are you having all the placebo effect? It's a mind effect. But they won't call the mind effect a mind effect. They'll call it the one thing in the world that it's absolutely not, a placebo effect. It would be closer to call it a giraffe effect. It might possibly be a giraffe effect. There might be mystical giraffes in, Af in Africa that are sending out mystical beams of healing energy. That's possible. What's not possible is that the placebo is actually having this effect. 
Because if it is, then it's not a placebo. Right? And they still call it a placebo effect. Why are they using the absolute wrong term? Because they are absolutely bending into contortions to avoid the obvious truth that subjective experience is causally efficacious and influences the brain in measurable ways. How does it do it? Nobody knows. No scientist knows anyway. And so the idea here when speaking with people, number one, if they're closed-minded and not interested, then just you know, talk about other things. But if they're really interested, you know, let's just express an interest. I've spent now years studying philosophy of mind and engaging with neuroscientists and listening to an awful lot of nonsense and listening to a lot of really wonderful insights and technologies and so forth, but all punched together, you know, and trying to get in there with tweezers and find where's the extremely good neuroscience from which I can really learn a lot and where are the faults, the assumptions that have never been corroborated at all and see how vastly much is not known about the nature of consciousness, the origins of consciousness, and recognizing this is not known. And moreover, it's not clear that just by learning about more and more about neurocorrelates, they will actually unveil the nature of consciousness. Because why should we? We're not even looking at it. You know? So I think the most strategic way to approach this is with an open mind, critically investigate alter ulterior alternative views, see whether they're really robust or not, or whether they're just speculation, falsely being presented as scientific fact, and then look into alternative modes of inquiry. We're actually taking a far more scientific approach to the mind by observing it directly. And if people are interested, they're interested. But there is already a good deal of empirical evidence that's published by reputable publishers, indicating strong evidence that there are states of consciousness that are not contingent upon the brain. I've alluded to some of these in my book, Mind and the Balance, uh, there's an, a very good book synopsizing 40 years of research at the University of Virginia and then research done all over the world but based there called Where Reincarnation and Biology Intersect by a very reputable scientist, open, they have no axe to grind, they're not Buddhist or Hindu, they're not religious, they're not trying to prove some belief system, they just have open minds which is a wonderful commodity in a modern scientific community and they've come up with some very, very interesting evidence, empirical, objective evidence indicating children having veridical memories of past lives, for which there's no reasonable explanation apart from a continuity of consciousness. There's a growing body of evidence of people having near-death and out-of-body experiences. Some are really very compelling, where the, the brain is dead, and they're having veridical experiences of what's taking place in the operating room. And there are many other cases like that. And then, but the brain is dead, there's no activity whatsoever. So there's a growing body of evidence for this, and this is not even counting the evidence from 2,000, 3,000 years of contemplative inquiry in India and so forth. And I do find it very, very, I mean, absurdly ethnocentric, just absurdly ethnocentric, to count out whole civilizations in multiple countries throughout Asia, where this has been the central topic of interest, where the best and brightest have gone for hundreds and hundreds of years, spending thousands of hours of meticulous inquiry in the nature of the mind, and to assume out of hand that they didn't discover anything that modern science, with about 135 years of study of mind, has not. That we, with 135 years of studying behavior and brain, and they haven't spent, in the Buddhist tradition, 2,500 years investigating the mind itself, and not being open to the possibility that maybe they made some very important discoveries that we've not made in the modern West, that might actually contradict some of our assumptions? To my mind, that's just absurd. That is not reasonable. 
that is irrational, ethnocentric, and just highly prejudicial. And I don't find it an interesting kind of thing. So, to approach this with openness, and to look for the empirical evidence, and to finally, finally, finally start taking first-person experience seriously. When you observe the mind, you see nothing physical whatsoever. When you observe the brain, you see nothing mental whatsoever. Shouldn't that be a strong indication that the mind and brain are not the same and one is not simply a function of the other? But they're correlated. They are mutually interdependent. They interrelate causally. Placebo effect top-down, brain effect top-up, but profoundly entangled. That seems to me the most sensible approach. So if people are, are moderately interested, I would turn them on to books like my book, Mind of the Balance. It's a rational, empirical book published by a major academic publisher, Columbia University Press, where reincarnation and biology intersect. Very, very interesting, very compelling evidence. A much larger tome for people really interested is called Irreducible Mind by a whole team of scientists at the University of Virginia, providing empirical evidence in about 800 pages or so, I don't remember exactly, but empirical evidence showing it doesn't make any sense to say the mind is just the emergent property of the brain. Here's the empirical evidence. If one is really interested, read that book. It's really, it's really good science. And then if one is really interested, then get down and start observing the mind. And maybe go off and spend two years in the observatory. Discover the substrate consciousness. Frankly, the more one practices shamatha, the more utterly ludicrous the materialistic interpretation of the mind looks like. It's just flat-out superstition. So there we go. And we're at 6.05. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. So, to proceed gently, I'm not always gentle, but to proceed gently, and with respect for people, but I don't think we have to show respect for ridiculous ideas and unquestioned assumptions. I don't, have, I don't think they deserve respect. Oh, so, but people do. Oh, so, let's take a break.